Welcome everybody to Dead Talk Live. I am your host Viz and today we have co-director, lead star, actor, and producer of The Retaliators uh, coming out this Wednesday in theaters, September 14th, Michael Lombardi. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on that intro. I wanted you to have the, uh, have you heard our theme song yet? Yes. <laughs> I thought it would have been a nice backdrop because it's crazy, right? What movie has a theme song? How lucky am I? And you know what? You brought that up. Let's get right to the music. This movie has an amazing soundtrack. Now you're a musician yourself, uh, Motley Crue, the whole night. How did that all come together? Isn't that crazy? It's a crazy story. Um, I'll try to, uh, to to not make it as long as it actually is. It's crazy serendipitous. There's so many angles to it. Yeah, I had a band in the early, uh, like, 2000s, mid-2000s. We had a little record deal at the time. I'm a total East Coast guy. I'm actually in Manhattan right now. My hometown. My car. Yeah, baby. Um, so uh, I, I would go back to uh, back and forth to L.A. a lot, and I was out there for an extended period of time. And my, my music manager was like, hey, listen, you know, I want you to go write some songs with these incredible songwriters, these brothers. They live in Southern California. You need to go and meet them. So cut two, they're the Gear Brothers, right? These are now the writers of the film. But I will tell you how this happened. I uh, I would drive about an hour and a half and write with them and our, and our creative uh, uh, just inspirations. We were just so aligned every step. We really hit it off on many levels. There are such talented guys. Anyway, several years had passed. I hadn't spoken with them. And, uh, you know, I'm back on the East Coast, just didn't connect. And I'm, uh, I, I, I get asked to do a charity event and play one of the songs that I wrote with the Gear Brothers. Mm-hmm. It was called When Heaven and Hell Collide. Wanted to drop it a half step. It wasn't my band. I'm hosting this thing. It's the house band. Can sound a little money. Call Darren. Aaron Gear, hey bud, this is what I have to do. I don't know. Do you think the song would sound good like this? Blah blah blah. What have you been up to? He tells me writing screenplays. I said, send them to me. One of them was the Retaliators. I was uh, I was on a plane three to five days later. Uh, I fell in love with the script. The musical aspect of it jumped off the page. Now get this. Here's the serendipitous part. At the charity event was a man named Alan Kovac. He's one of them. He's a legendary music manager. He has a record label. It's called Better Noise Music. Um, now we have a film division there. I brought the script to Alan. He said, Michael, let's do this movie. Mm-hmm. I see it as a vehicle. I see, you know, the movie has the wink at the 80s of all those films with great soundtracks. And the next thing you know, he gives me the numbers to all his incredible musicians. He has over 40 bands. He had Meatloaf in the day, the Bee Gees. It's incredible. And he backed me for this whole film. That's a, that's an amazing story, and this film is really really good. Uh, you guys nailed it. It has suspense. There's a twist that you really don't see coming. Let's go deeper into the film. Uh, let's start off with the opening sequence. It's a sort of a brutal sequence that this film opens up with um, out in the middle of the woods. Tell us about that opening scene in regards to the entire film and how it opens it up. Yeah, you know, it's so hard to talk about it without giving too much away, exactly. but that was a very planned scene and something that actually I had to fight for uh, because, you know, it, it's it's um, the, these aren't those aren't zombies line um, and the way it all plays back in the third act. I think that many things and many aspects creatively of this film, we had to take chances on. And what I mean by that is I really looking back now, 
I believed in the script so much when I read it that it's one thing to read a script, then you edit it, right? And then, and, and, or then you shoot it and then you edit it and you could have three different films, right? Mm -hmm. Or three different creative concepts. But with this one and what you're referring to, it was something that I fought really hard for. Um, and, and, and look, the crazy thing about this is the movie's not for everyone. I get that because there are a lot of genres mixed and twists and turns, but what I loved is it, if, if you fight for the things you want, and I know I'm not directly answering your question because I'm afraid to give too much away. I'll let no, you that's talk fine. Yeah, yeah. about what you're talking about. We fought for that, that that's crazy beginning that just comes out and punches you mm -hmm. right in the face and then asks a question that is then answered later on. But I don't think that's, uh, you know, the safest style or the safest way to go because at the heart, I think the film's a very slow burn and it's very story driven mm -hmm. and it takes a while to answer that question. It right? is, it so is, it was a risk. It is story driven uh, by the characters. You yourself, Mark Manchaco, who we're going to get in a little bit. He's, he was a former guest of ours. He was brilliant. You were great. Uh, the cast is what really brought this film to life. The, now you play Bishop, uh, a pastor who has mm -hmm. a daughter, Sarah, uh, from reading the synopsis, this is not a spoiler. It sounds like a revenge story, okay? And that's ultimately what this film sort of is. There's an important scene towards the beginning of the film when you and your daughter are out shopping for a Christmas tree, okay? And an incident happens, and you as the pastor with your daughter right there looking on sort of take the high road. Uh, was that an important scene in not only setting up the relationship between Bishop and Sarah, but to letting us know about the insights of Bishop's character? Absolutely. On many levels. First of all, as you said, it's a revenge tale, right? It's the oldest story in the book. It's like Shakespeare writing about love. It's that primal instinct, that that primal, the revenge. Uh, it's... it's you know, it's as raw as it gets. But what I think is really interesting in this is that it's told through the eyes of a, uh, through the, the, the footsteps of a man from the cloth, you know, and I think that's what makes it really interesting. So that scene sets up a lot because he chose to be passive mm -hmm. in that instance. And it shows, and also, you know, he's a single dad, a teenage daughter, a younger daughter trying to do his best. They're there when it happens. He doesn't condone violence and actually preparing for this role. I put some layers in of him that maybe he had done something in his past that made him turn to faith mm -hmm. to uh, to sort of. Because I think to make it believable to where he goes in this story, he need to he needed to have something in him. He couldn't have just been, you know, this this innocent guy who maybe maybe I, I don't know if I should get into the, the thespian side of it. But what I put in there is maybe he got into a bar fight when he was eighteen and yeah. hurt someone by accident, and then met his wife whose dad was a pastor and took him into the church and showed him that. And those are the rules he lives by now, you know. Uh, uh, so, so I think it's it was a tricky one uh, again because you have to ride this fine line. But I think that scene is extremely important, and then again, it comes for full circle in the third act. And absolutely, and I love hearing stories because every actor that I've spoken to with the character that they're playing, they have to build a backstory in order to properly play out that character. And it sounds like you did exactly that. Now, 
Mark Menchaca, uh, he did an amazing job in this film. In your opinion, what did he bring to the set that was that that element, that untangible thing, intangible thing that just brought magic to the set? Yeah, first, he's amazing. Um, I love him. His gravitas. I think the guy, his voice, he doesn't even have to. He's very simple. I think he, it's all here. It's behind his eyes. It's who he is. When I saw that he was available, I'm like, we have to get Mark Menchaca for the role of Jed, the small town detective. I think his look is phenomenal. He's actually really funny, too. And we have a lot of funny uh, outtakes of him and I because he's totally chill. He does the homework. This is what, you know, what's interesting, too, is uh, I honestly didn't know this at the time, but as soon as he got to set and I actually, I had heard, he, he studied with Bill Esper at the William Esper studio and wow. his wife, Suzanne, it's where I studied. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a school where like actors such as Kathy Bates, Jeff Goldblum, Paul Sorvino, Sam Rockwell, mm -hmm. I can't say enough about this place. And look, an acting school is a place you go and you learn and you realize if you like this, then you make, you have your toolbox and you make everything you learn your own. Right. And you have to put it in and, and that changes and develops as you go. But one thing that's important, as you said, is the, the backstory and finding the truth. That's the number one. And then you do all this homework. Like, as I said, I, I talked to you about a little bit of the layers I put in, but I went to live sermons. You know, Menchaca knows these rules and he, and, and he, he did all this backstory as I did. And then we're just we know our point of views, our characters, objectives. And then we're two people with our feet on the ground doing the scene, being truthful to one another under these imaginary circumstances. What that loops me back to is his simplicity yeah. in who he is. Because you can trust it all. You have to trust it's there. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't wear all those moments on your sleeve and think about the result. You know, it's always about the pinch, never the ouch. And he's the type of actor who does that homework and then that allows us just to play in the scenes and have fun and you know uh just listen and answer now a critical scene between you and mark who plays the character detective jed uh that really is the plot turning point of this film is when you guys are in the bar talking uh of course we're not going to reveal any spoilers but that is a very crucial scene in the conversation that you guys have looking back uh when the film was done and you saw the final product uh were you satisfied because it was i think it was very well done in that revelation scene the dialogue between you two what were your thoughts on that scene yeah it's so funny as you were asking me that question i thought of a few different things because um one is the writers visited the set that day. Mm. So they hadn't seen Mark and I do any of the work. And, you know, you, you feel like you feel like you're, you know, you're always trying to do your best, you know, mm -hmm. in a scene. And then sometimes you forget what just happened and you're like, okay, moving on. But in that particular case, the, the, the writers were behind the monitor and they came out like flipping out. Like they were like, Oh my. So I felt an energy of sort of them being there. And I felt a heaviness to the moment between Mark and I, and as you said, it, it's, it's a, it's a big scene. It's a pivotal scene in the film. And quite honestly, I think, you know, the foundation of the film is sort of based on that because, and we can say this without a spoiler alert. He says to me, how would you like your minute alone? Right. And the yeah. thing is, I think the film and the provocative question of this movie is if you had a minute alone with the person did you wrong destroyed your family your loved one yeah would you take it 
Yeah. And, uh, and the, the, there's a lot unravels in that bar scene, but that was one thing because they happened to be there. So it felt like Mark and I were connected, but those guys came out flipping out and it always makes you, know, it feels good when the writers who wrote these words and, and made these characters are sort of moved by a scene. Uh, and then the other thing is we had a really funny outtake in that we were like looking in one another's eyes pretty heavily and it's a heavy moment and he broke into song and then uh i sang the song with him uh, there's actually a little footage of it i'll have to get it to you to play for this maybe at the end of it that's awesome i'd love to see that <laughs> would you really would you describe bishop as an unconve unconventional hero in this film with the actions that he ultimately takes as the film you know goes through act one two and three I never honestly looked at it like that. Like, I think early on, someone might have mentioned, you know, the, the referenced Evil Dead, of course, Ash, right? There hasn't been yep. a horror hero since him. But when I took on the role of playing him, that's the last word that I wanted in my head. I honestly, I just wanted to make him a human being who's up against these circumstances and tries to do his best in the decisions he makes. And then at the end, it's for the audience to judge, right? Uh, um, but I do think in, in you know, seeing the film and you know randy bricker i brought in to edit this he's a phenomenal guy and, and we knew that we needed someone who had horror and story mm -hmm. and randy goes he's been around so long he uh he worked as an apprentice on the movie the firm with tom cruise and yeah. he did i am legend and then he did the halloween franchise and nice. he's currently head, head editor on the chucky series the wow TV. And he worked on chucky before too he's amazing anyway he mentioned ash from the evil dead so as I'm starting to be on the outside of this, being able to talk about it, I am hearing that more and more. And uh, I understand why. Um, I, but at the end of the day, man, you know what? I'm just happy that people were engaged enough and along, along for the ride of my character. Because if you're not with these characters, then the movie doesn't work, right? Exactly. So it's pretty cool. That's kind of where I'm at with it right now. Would you agree that the retaliators, the underlying theme here is vengeance versus crossing a line that there's no coming back from? And that is what Bishop is faced with. Yeah, that's heavy. You know, when you say it, like, honestly, I think somewhere along the line that was said, but it hasn't been said to me uh, uh, in a while. Uh, you're crossing a line that there's no coming back from, right? Yeah. Um, that makes it because I think if you're sitting in a seat and you're and you're and you're watching this or pondering these concepts of morality, religion, justice, and if you can have that minute alone, what we do, it's a lot different than actually being faced with it. And look, the best I could, I had to think about this circumstance. And I think I have a six-year-old boy, and I think you know that might be an easier shoe-in. Um, and, and you know, if you have a niece or a nephew, or I remember being young too and thinking about someone hurting my parents or my family. So I think you can do that imaginary work and stuff. But having it filmed this and played this guy for a while, I think it is one thing to want that concept of revenge. And fully, I fully understand that. And I think the audience member, half of them are going to want that. Yeah. And the other half are going to be on the fence, right? Which makes it so interesting. Maybe they could feel how they'd want that, but do they? But imagine having that human being in front of you could you really like draw blood could you really hurt someone um because as you said there's no 
coming back from that. Right? Exactly. And, you know, when you're talking about it, you're like, I want to rip him. But when you're, that's what this movie does. It puts them in that situation. Okay, you talk the talk. Yes. Do the action. Would you do it? And as a parent myself, you're, you're a parent. Parents, I mean, people who are not parents, this is no way of put down. They cannot understand what it is to be a, a parent and to have this love for your child that is just so unconditional and to have that just taken away from you uh, with needlessly and senselessly. Uh, that's what this movie really taps into. Tommy Lee makes sort of a cameo appearance in this film. How did that come about? Yeah. On another note, Tommy Lee, um, you know what? It's again, it's through, uh, through Alan Kovac and Better Noise Music. That uh, Motley Crue is one of the bands that mm-hmm. Alan manages. And so um, basically, there's it's a cool part. Oh, this is funny. I was talking about the theme song earlier. Nikki Six wrote the theme song. From Whoa. Motley Crue. Yeah, Tommy plays drums on it. It's pretty sick. So, And we have other guest uh, stars on, on that track. So yeah, so Tommy, um, how all the, listen, we have Five Finger Death Punch play the Motorcycle Gang. These guys are one of the biggest heavy rock bands in the world, like second to Metallica. We have Spencer Charnas from Ice Nine Kills. We've got Eva Marie from the band Eva Under Fire. Jacoby Shaddix from Papa Roach, who's so good. But here's the thing. I really, it was the, the number one thing that was so important to me. And Alan and I had a lot of talks about this from the beginning, as did me and Darren Gear. Um, we wanted to make this a film first. Yeah. And I wanted this to be a movie that hopefully was accepted within the genre. And if we're lucky, maybe outside a little bit, because it does ask a few questions. You might be able to go out for a drink or eat afterward and, and, and talk about it, right? So, but, but the bottom line, have it be a film and have all this wonderful musical aspect be uh, uh, it's a gold or silver lining, right? That we have this core audience, but we never wanted to just lean on that. Yeah. Because I think for others, if you were to get, if you knew you can get Tommy Lee, you'd pay him a boatload of money to be in your movie to help for publicity, right? Yeah. We luckily had access. So I was able to get him the script. I was able to call all these artists beforehand that I just mentioned and talk to them about their roles. And we placed them in, in characters that we thought they would be wonderful and and fit in beautifully like five finger they're the motorcycle gang these are all huge guys tatted up dreaded beards they're they're scary right they're the sweetest guys and very hard working and i can say the same for all the musical uh uh, aspect elements of this not only the songs but like the actors that came in and did their cameos man where they committed they worked so hard they knew their they, they were doing their uh their exercises on the side and they're sort of uh uh what's their objective what do they want to do in this scene their homework yeah and they they brought it man oh, and as yeah. a director what a beautiful thing to be able to work with people like that and i'd rather someone come big because they're storytellers at heart yeah. right but they're normally singing in front of an audience so now they have to pull it in put it behind the eyes a little bit and uh yeah man they were doing their their work on this um they're all amazing so that's the other thing like i said to accomplish that goal because look if you said hey there's you know all these musicians in here you might think is this movie for real and maybe some people will think it's not but i no. feel like that's something we we hopefully we paid a lot of attention to no it's it, it's a movie first with an amazing soundtrack and I'm happy that you guys have a soundtrack that's available for people to download, buy, and listen to because 
uh, people who watch this movie are going to, I feel a lot of them are going to be captivated by the music and are going to go out and buy the soundtrack to this film. Quickly, last question, because we're almost out of time. Uh, yeah. Not only are you the lead star, you're co-director and producer. How did that come about? Uh, so, you know, I, I told you how I found the script. So when I brought the script to Alan, he said, Michael, make the movie. I got your back on this. Let's do it. So now I'm a producer. And, you know, the producer, I, I get to, I have a lot of um, creative input and sort of I've been the guardian yeah. of the film, if you will. And I, and I think one of the most important aspects about this is, and I learned from a long time ago, I was on a television show called Rescue Me for a long time. It was post 9-11, New York City firefighters on the FX network. Dennis Leary was the star of that. But Big show. Here's what's interesting. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I didn't uh, realize it at the time, but he was a producer. He was the star and he was the co-creator. So I think I pulled a lot of things from him and he wanted to make sure that his vision made it to the screen. Now, that's not to say I've been very open and it's a collaborative process and it takes an army to make a movie. Oh, yeah. But I did know, and I said this to you earlier, that I, the challenge is to get this script. Um, you know, uh, when I read it, I saw all these winks at different films, different genres, uh, the Spielbergian Dante as Gremlins, small town beginning into this almost graphic novel Sin City vibe into this crazy evil dead with elements. I used to love the yeah. string westerns and Clint Eastwood and Charlie Bronx. And I saw that sort of badass sort of vibe in it too throughout. And I was like, and Darren, and I called Darren and he goes, exactly. Though that's, though that's what it is. And, uh, now we had to make it. So I think being the producer and then being able to step in during COVID, fighting COVID in multiple locations, we had to go out to Nevada for Five Finger. And again, we were shut down as, mm -hmm. as uh, you know, no one got COVID, thank goodness, but the protocols were pretty heavy, yet rightfully so, from the Screen Actors Guild. So that's when I had to direct some. And of course, you know, just, just knowing this story, it, it helped a lot, I think. At the end of the day, I said this movie wasn't for anyone, but no movie that I like really is because then you're caught in a great place, right? Yeah. We we wanted to set out to make an entertaining popcorn movie that people can go to the theater and see or sit at home and get taken on a crazy journey and hopefully maybe think about it a little bit. Exactly. After. That's the important part. After they leave that theater or finish watching the movie, have them asking questions to themselves. What would happen if I was in that situation? Guys, the movie is called The Retaliators. It's coming out in theaters uh, this Wednesday, September 14th. I don't have any information on a video-on-demand release date. Do you know when it would be available for video-on-demand? Yeah, yeah, it's going exclusive to theaters for a few weeks. It's going to hit uh, demand later, closer to Halloween. But awesome. It's going to live in the theaters for a bit, yeah. Awesome. Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming on here when you're busy in New York City. Luckily, New York City has an amazing cell service, and your video was perfect. <laughs> your, your, thank you, man. Your video did not even stutter. I want to thank our audience, those who have tuned in live. Again, the movie's called The Retaliators. Check it out. You will not be disappointed by the movie, by the music. On behalf of yeah. Michael and myself... Guys, stay safe and stay walking. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.